We all want to belong. We all crave relevance. We all seek purpose. We fill our lives with more. We chase more money, more friends, more experiences, more stuff. We hope in institutions and sporting icons and technology and fame. Perhaps what we need is less about more and more about less. And seeking one thing, everything else falls into place. We pursue the one who never fails, fixing our eyes on what lasts, putting the first things first. Welcome to Cross Point. So glad that you're with us today as we keep going in this series. We continue this series called First Things First, where we're talking about the choices that we make in life and what it means to put God first. And we've talked about how sociologists say that we make over 35,000 conscious choices or decisions everything, every single day. And I was reading one of the studies that came out of Cornell University, and it said uh, approximately somewhere around 226 of those choices are about food. On average, 226, that's a a lot. I think for me, it's like, no, I can't eat that. No, I can't eat that. No, I can't eat that. Yes, I'm going to eat that. And so we make make all these choices, but, but with all the choices that we make, and that's a lot of choices, that's a lot of food, but with all the choices that we make, um, we can't order our lives like a, like a meal at a restaurant, but we do get to order our lives in that the most significant choice that we make is what we put first. It's what we seek first. And that's what Jesus is going after in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We've been reading through it together. This section that's our anchor for the series, we pick up in verse 31. And if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me. I'll be reading from the NIV. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, don't worry. Now, it doesn't mean much coming from them. But when Jesus says, don't worry, when Jesus tells us, do not worry, he's come to deliver this truth to us that we do not have to worry. And we we can choose to worry. We can worry if we want to, but Jesus said, we don't have to worry in that we have a father in heaven who cares for us. And Jesus knows that we worry. Jesus knows that we worry. And what he's saying, it's not enough to simply believe that God exists, but transformation happens when we learn to trust him. When we're learning to trust our Heavenly Father, we can trust that our Father in Heaven cares for us, that He sees us, that He knows us, that He loves us, and that He'll care for us. But we worry. We all struggle with worry. I wonder if there aren't some things that we do, though, that may be adding to our stress and adding to our worry, like what we do first. I don't know if you're like me, but when I reach over to my nightstand to turn off my alarm in the morning, my temptation, or there's this gravitational pull to just keep my phone in my hand and start scrolling, to start looking through the phone, looking through my phone, and and there's this gravitational pull to start start going through and scrolling and checking messages and emails and news and scrolling through social media, and neurologists tell us that that's like the worst thing we can do. 
They say we move from alpha waves to uh, delta waves like that. I have no idea what that means. But I think what, what they're saying is we move from this restful place to this hyper focus. Just think about it. We just wake up and we've got like this. We've got, we're just assaulted by all these images and information and uh, negativity and news. And, and it's just constantly, it's coming, it's coming at us in that moment. And it's just unfiltered, and it's, it's coming our direction. I mean, before we're even out of bed. I mean, I want you to think about it. You, you, you pick up your phone, maybe you pick up your phone and start scrolling, and the first thing you see is a post from Steve. And you know Steve. You know Steve from work. Steve, the one that just gets on your nerves. Can we say that in church? I mean, Steve, the one who's just hard. Let's put it this way. He's hard for you to love. Steve is obnoxious. When you Steve, see Steve coming toward, toward you, you walk in different direction. I mean, Steve... I'm just saying, there may be a Steve, there may be Steven. If your name is Steve, I'm sorry. But like, <laughs> Steve in the office. And in that, in that moment, you see first thing in the morning, before you've even got out of bed, you see a post from Steve, his hot take on a social issue. And in that moment, you're triggered. Like, you're triggered before, before you even have gone to the bathroom. You're already triggered for the day. And Steve, I mean, I want you to think about me. Do you really want to think about Steve first thing? Do you really, do you want a word from God or a word from Steve? Do you want the presence of God or the presence of Steve? Right? Do you, in that moment, do you want, I mean, we, we, there's just this unfiltered amount of just information that's coming toward us. And why do we do it? And I think it's just because, because this, our phones can be like a, uh, like a, like a slot machine that we go to for a hit of dopamine. And we've conditioned ourselves in that way that we, we go to these things. And so how do you replace how do you replace one habit? Well, you introduced another habit. And so what we've been encouraging in this series is instead of, instead of, um, instead of scrolling, that we start our day with God, that the first 15 minutes, neurologists, they'll tell us that the first 15 minutes of our day set the direction and the disposition of our day. And so it's important what we do in those first 15 minutes. Parker Palmer is an author who talks about um, talks about the soul, and I want you to hear what, he, hear what he writes. He says, the soul is like a wild animal, tough and resilient and savvy and self-sufficient and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge and out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. When we scroll first thing, it's like leading a parade through the woods, <laughs> crashing through the woods. But really what we need is that moment just to, to sit and to think and to reflect, to engage with the scriptures. Imagine if the first, first voice that we would hear in the day before the symphony and the chaos of all the other voices, but that first voice that we would hear would be the voice of the Father, that we would meet God in his word. In Psalm 46.10, it says, be still and know that I am God. That before we enter into our day, that we would take some moments, that first 15 minutes, we can start there and just be still. And in those moments, experience gratitude, receive God's grace, receive his mercy, rest in his love, to receive a word from him, to share our hearts with him. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he had this pattern of sneaking away from the crowd and beginning his day in that place of rest, in that place of rest of the love of God. 
And so in this series, we've been encouraging to start the first 15 minutes of your day. And what you do with that first 15 minutes matters. But, but today I want to talk about what you do with the, with the rest of the, of the time. Because what you do with the other 23 hours and 45 minutes matters too. And today I want to talk about worship. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word worship, what we think about is we think about what happens at the three songs we sing in church on Sunday. Or we think we hear the word worship and we think about what we do when we come together for a worship service or a worship gathering. And we come together at church on the weekend. But today I want to broaden out that definition of worship. And I want us to see that it's so much bigger than that. In fact, when you go back to the word worship from the old English, the word is a two-part word. It means worth-ship. It means the, the thing that we give worth to, that we give highest value to, that we esteem, that we hold up. And those are the things, the thing that we value most, that has greatest value in our life. And we are all worshipers. Whether you believe in God or not, you're a worshiper. Because we were made to worship. We were made by God and we were made for God. We were made to worship. We were created to worship him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. That God has placed eternity in every human heart. And what that means is that all of us have a space, had this space that was created for God. And we were made to worship him. And, and there was a, uh, there was a uh, French mathematician, Blaise Pascal, in the 17th century, and he said that essentially that we all have this insatiable God-shaped gap within us, which only God can fill. C.S. Lewis says we have an absence where there we were created to experience presence. And so there is this space inside of us that we, that we go throughout this world and we're looking, we're trying to fill. And if you survey the landscape of the world around you, you'll see people going after things, trying to find filling, trying to find satisfaction in shopping and entertainment and work and sports and sex and money and relationships and technology and politics and, and achievement and accomplishment and education and, and, and clothes and, and looks and success and fame and pleasure and popularity and possessions and video games and chemicals and substances and all the things and stuff. And if you look around, you go, what is all this about? Why are, we, why are we running after all these things? Why are we wearing ourselves out going after all these things? It's because there's a space inside of us that we're trying to fill. And we can't fill the space inside of, we can't fill eternal longings with temporary things. For to say it, it's like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with a medicine dropper. It's just not gonna work. And Augustine said it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. You have made us for yourself. God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. And so all the running after all the things can be tied back to the restlessness of our hearts because restless hearts run. But we weren't always restless. I mean, you go back to the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve, there was a perfect relationship with God. But then with original sin, when they sinned against God, brokenness and restlessness entered the world. And Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and it began with a doubt. It began with a question. The question is like, did God really say? In other words, is, is God really good? Like, is God really out for your best good and for his glory? Like, can you really trust God? So that was the doubt, and then there was a desire that came after, and the desire was to be in charge. 
to be in control, to occupy the throne of our own lives, the space that was created for God, but that we would put ourselves in that space, the the idea that we know better than God. And so when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, he's saying, seek first the king, because you can't have a kingdom without a king. And there's a lot of people that want the kingdom of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. People who want the kingdom of God without the king of God, but you can't have the kingdom without the king. And so Jesus is saying, seek first the king, that Jesus would be in the rightful place because our lives are going to orbit around something or somebody. And we were created, the only way life works is when Jesus is in his rightful place in our hearts. As he's in the, his rightful place on his throne in heaven, but that we would establish him in the rightful place of our hearts. That we would revere him and honor him and serve him. And as we put him in that place, that he would be our source of satisfaction. That he would be our source of fulfillment. That he would be our significance. That we find our purpose from him. Our worth and identity come from him. But restless hearts run after things. Have you, ever, have you ever been um, stressed and bought something on Amazon? I mean, you went on, maybe got the app, which makes it so convenient, and you're thinking like, man, I need that. And then when you, you buy it, and then you, you wake up one morning, and you walk out, and there's a box there, and you open up, you're like, who ordered this? The stressed version of me ordered that thing. I mean, there's that, there's that moment, when, and I thought I needed it, but I didn't need it. But it was the stress version of me that needed the thing, I was restless. Have you ever been stressed about something at work? You go to the refrigerator, open it up, and you're just standing there looking in the refrigerator. And then you realize, I'm not hungry. I'm just stressed. And I'm looking around. Your problem was you look in the refrigerator. You need to go to the freezer. You need to go to the freezer with ice cream. That works better, like in that moment. But like, we realize that how many times do we go to the refrigerator, we go to the pantry, and we're not hungry? It's just that our hearts are restless. Have you ever had something, that thing you thought, man, I need that thing, and when I get that thing, I'll be happy? I mean, when I just get the thing, when I just get the upgraded thing, when I just get the better thing, when I get the thing that, and we become become fixated on that one thing, and then we get the thing, and then the newness wears off, and it doesn't work, in that it doesn't do the thing that we thought it was going to do, what we needed it to do, what we wanted it to do. Restless hearts run after things, and things cannot satisfy restless hearts. Augustine, my heart was restless until my heart found rest in you. This is about worship. That's what Jesus in the teaching, when he says, even pagans run after these things. Who were the pagans? In Jesus' day, when the disciples heard this, they would have thought of the, 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 the Romans who were there, the Greco-Roman culture with all their idols and with all their temples and with their gods and their goddesses, and they would have thought of, of all of the idols, the pagans run after all these things. And so when Jesus says this, he knows that it's our heart's tendency to run after things, which are identified as, as idols. And we, we read about it in Romans, if you've got a Bible, Romans chapter, chapter 1, and what, what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 
is he writes this letter to the church at Rome and he's talking about this, this journey in our human condition, how we got from Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, this, this connection with God, this communion with God, this oneness with God where God was our satisfaction and that our hearts were rested in him. How do we get from that place all the way to where we are with, with idols? And this is what he writes. He says, for although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, this isn't just their story. This is our story. This didn't just happen. This happens. And that we exchange the, the glory of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and seeing the beauty of God and all that he's created, seeing his beauty and celebrating the creator and celebrating God. It says they exchanged the glory of God for images. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. They exchanged the, the truth for a lie. And there's this, there's this sad and sobering words that says God gave them over to the sinful desires of their, their hearts. And the picture is that God's like, that's, that's what you really want. Like if, that's, if that's what you, you really want, there was, a, there was this exchange that took place that rather than seeking to find our glory in God, give God glory with our lives, that we, we seek other things And these idols. And then in verse 25, he gives a definition of idolatry. If you're taking notes, here's a definition of idolatry. This is probably the most clear and succinct version in the the Bible. It's that idolatry is worshiping created things rather than the creator. Idolatry is worshiping created things rather than the creator. And when we worship ourselves, we're a created thing. So that's idolatry also, that we can worship created things rather than the creator. And we were made, we were made to worship. Each one of us was made to worship. And where when we would worship God, that we would get our sense of significance and security and value and worth, that we would derive who we are from him. That when God is in his rightful place in our hearts, then the deepest needs of our hearts are satisfied. That's why we can rest in him. But if God is not in that place, if he is not first in our lives, if he's not on the throne in our lives, something else is going to be on the throne. Something else is going to be worship. That idols don't have to be just merely figurines and statues and things that were formed and made, but that things that we continue to make and things that we continue to go after. And Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book. And Tim Keller was one of the most brilliant pastors and authors in our day. Recently, um, he went to be with Jesus. One of the books that he, he wrote is Counterfeit Gods. And in this book, he, he talks about idols. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. 
then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, and perhaps the best one is worship. The best teaching I ever heard on worship came from Louis Giglio. I was probably around 20 years old, and I remember um, I listened to it on a tape. Y'all know what tapes are? They're like these little cassette, I don't even know how to describe it, it's so foreign. Um, these, these tapes, and I heard this teaching on worship, and I wore out, you could actually wear out tapes, and I wore this tape out listening to Louis Giglio, pastor in Atlanta, speak on worship. And he gave this visual of worship that I just can't forget. He gave his thought, he said, he said in our hearts, in all of our hearts, we have a throne. And on that throne in our hearts is what we worship. On that throne is what we hold most important. And what's on that throne, it could be, it can be God or it could be a, a relationship or, or a dream job or maybe it's, it could be a career or it can be money or it can be fame or popularity. Maybe it might be what other people think of us. It can be sports. It can be kids' sports. There are a lot of different things that can be, can be on the throne of our hearts, enthroned in our hearts. And he said, if you want to know what's on the throne of your heart, well, you just follow the, the red carpet. Because there's red carpet that leads to the throne, and the red carpet that leads to the throne, if we just follow the red carpet of our time and of our energy and of our, of our devotion, of our allegiance, of our, of our affections and of our, our passions, and we follow that red carpet, it's going to lead to a throne. And on that throne is what's most important to us. So the question is, what's on the throne of your heart today? Because whatever is on the throne of our heart today, that's what we worship. That's what we give worth to. And there are a lot of things that can, that can take that place. There are a lot of things that can be on the throne of our hearts. There are a lot of things that battle for our, for our worship. And most of the things that end up on the throne of our hearts are good things. But good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. Most of the things that we put on the throne of our hearts that can rival God for greatest worth and value in our lives are good things, but good things become bad things when they become ultimate things, when they become things in our lives that are, that are ultimate. Take, for example, golf. Golf is a good thing. Golf's a very good thing. It's a gift from God. But golf makes a lousy God. See, um, marriage is a good thing. But when marriage takes the throne of our hearts, it becomes a bad thing when it's the ultimate thing. Marriage is a good thing, but it's a lousy God. Kids are a good thing, but they make a lousy God. Sports are good things, but they make a lousy God. Jim Bob. You know Jim Bob. You start dating Jim Bob, and you're like, Jim Bob's, I mean, it's a good thing that you're dating Jim Bob. Should have considered his name before you start dating, but like, <laughs> Jim Bob, you got a relationship, but Jim Bob can't hold your significance and your value. He can't meet the deepest needs of your heart. He just now got into personal hygiene, so Jim Bob... <laughs> But when we take these things that are good things and they become ultimate things in our lives, that's when they become bad things. That's when it becomes idolatry. Have you ever had a relationship where you thought, you know what, if they're okay, then I'm okay? But if they're not okay, I'm not, not okay? See, in counseling, they call it codependency. 
The Bible calls it idolatry. It's when our lives orient around a person or around a thing, when it takes precedence over over God. This is why order matters, because idolatry is when we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. When we take the gifts of God and they become God's in our lives, where we seek them for our security and our, our significance and our worth and our identity. So how do we know when something has moved from a good thing to an ultimate thing? Tim Keller writes about this in his book. Look what he says. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You think, if I lose that thing, then I don't know if I could go on. If I lost that thing, I don't know if I'd want to live anymore. That's how he said, we can know that it's become an ultimate thing and all this. And John Calvin said this, he said, the human heart is an idol factory, which means we can make an idol out of anything, even CrossFit. This is my testimony. This is my confession. Back in 2011, um, I knew I needed to get in shape. I mean, round was a shape, but it wasn't the shape that I wanted. And so I was like, I know I, need, I, know I need to get in shape. And so I used to, to play sports. And so I was like, and I heard some friends talk about this thing called CrossFit. And I knew I need to get back into lifting weights because my kids, when I would play with my kids, I had this deal with my back and I would throw my back out when I would play with my kids. And I'm like, I wanna I want be able to play with my kids. I don't wanna throw my back out anymore. So I need to start lifting weights. So I was like, I need to start, you know, lifted weights and CrossFit. I got around some people who were doing CrossFit and they talked about it and they, how much they loved it. And so I got in, I got in, I tried to work out and I was like, this is awesome because it's a bunch of like old guys lifting weights fast. And so, which is not a good combo, you know, it's just like, and there were, there were young people who were doing it and it made me feel younger than I was. And so I was like, I was in, you know, in my early thirties and I was like, this is, this is awesome. Like, this is, this is incredible. Like I love CrossFit. And so I got all into to CrossFit. I mean, I got all the clothes, I got all, I had wrist wraps, I had knee, I, like I, all the orthopedics, you know, and so like I was, and I was out there like doing the work and I, I was pretty, I was pretty good at it. I mean, I just kind of had one gear, like just go. And so I, 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 they had this workout called Fran. I don't know, Fran is part of the, it's like a CrossFit workout. It's 21, 15, nine thrusters, thrusters like this. And some of you, you don't care, you shouldn't. But I was like, I probably won't do one again on a Sunday, but like, and so I, we do thrusters and, and pull-ups. It's thrusters and pull-ups. And Fran is a very, it's, like it's kind of like one of those workouts, a benchmark workout. And so like you try to get your time on how fast you can do 21, 15, 9 of both of those movements. And uh, some of you really don't care. And, and, but if you did CrossFit, like you really care right now, you're excited. We're talking about it in church. You're having a spiritual experience just because we're talking about it. And I, I found out that, like, man, I would want to talk about my Fran time with anyone. It's kind of like if you go to a Globo gym, you know how people talk about how much they bench press? In CrossFit, people just want to talk about what their friend time was. And so, like, I would bring it up in conversation. I would find ways to talk about CrossFit. Somebody's like, how you doing? I'm like, man, I'm sore. <laughs> They're like, why are you sore? Because I CrossFit. I mean, I would, I would find ways to talk. I talked more about CrossFit than, I talked more about CrossFit than Jesus. And I was a pastor at the time. If I, and I get people to sign up. Like I get people to sign up for the gym. If I made commission on how many people I saw, I would be retired right now. I don't even know where I'd be standing here. Like I, I was all about CrossFit. No doubt. How do you know when somebody does CrossFit? Don't worry about it. They'll tell you. Like it is one of those things where if you do CrossFit, you let other people know. 
I did, um, I did some competitions in, uh, in, in CrossFit, so I even got into competing. I got, and I got, a, I, I'll show you one picture. This is one, this is uh, me and Mike um, pushing a sled. That's a, that's a good picture, man. We're just, we're just going after it. Um, Mike's like, how do I make up for the, the fact that I'm with this guy? You know, he's having to push twice as hard. So that's one picture. Here's another picture of me doing, uh, doing CrossFit, and that's, that's just like, man, it's just... Let's take that down real fast. Let's take that down real fast. I got pictures on you too. CrossFit became um, such a big part of my life, and it was a great hobby, but it, was a, it became an idol. And you're like, how did you know? See, that's the thing about idols. We can't see the idols in our own lives. Unless God helps us see, we can't see it. Have you noticed how you can see it in other people's lives? This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't judge. He's like, he's like before, you go working on, before you go working on the speck in your, in your brother or sister's eye, like deal with the log in your own eye. Like deal with the idols in our own hearts before we go trying to dismantle other people's idols. But there was a time where I realized it, where I had revelation with it, when I was... Um, I had seen something about somebody who lost a limb in an accident. And I remember my first thought after I thought that, man, I'd hate for that to happen because then I couldn't do Fran. Then I couldn't do pull-ups. It wasn't, then I couldn't like throw my child and then play with my kids. It wasn't, I couldn't, couldn't hug my wife. It was like, so I couldn't do CrossFit. And I remember there was just this sobering sense of like, maybe this has too much real estate in my heart. And there was, through that revelation, I realized there is something else on the throne of my heart other than Jesus. And I dethroned the idol. And we're gonna talk more about how you do that next week. But the first part is the revelation. It's to be able to ask the question, God, what are the things in my life that are good things that become ultimate things that have now become bad things? You're like, well, why are they bad things? Let me tell you why they're bad things. The first is because idols can't sustain us. They eventually enslave us. Our idols can't sustain us. They eventually enslave us because idols require sacrifice. All idols do. And when they take and they take and they take and they take, but they don't give us what we need. I was riding down the road and I was having a conversation with Durham who was with Camden and she was driving her car and they, I could hear them talking and, and Camden said in the background, she said, hey, Durham, I'm gonna get diesel. They were at the gas station. She was like, I'm gonna get diesel. If you wanna freak your dad out, just go ahead and say, I'm gonna get diesel in my car that doesn't take diesel, like in that moment. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And she was like, I'm kidding. <laughs> but why did, I, why did I get so anxious? Why did, I, why did I yell no? Because I know that that's not the fuel that her car needs. Idols can't fuel our lives. They can't sustain us. We were built for something more. We were built to worship God, but these other things, can't sustain us, they eventually enslave us. Number two, eventually they'll ultimately fail us. At some point, these idols, they'll disappoint us. Nobody or no other thing can hold the weight of your security, your identity, and your significance other than God. One day we will get injured. One day we will, we will have the relationship will end. We'll, we might lose the job or the market might tank or stuff will start sagging or the kids will leave the house 
Gravity does its thing. Eventually, that's going to happen. That's why these things can't sustain us in our lives. Eventually, they will disappoint us. They'll let us down. And then number three, we become like what we worship. This is the most sobering one. We become like what we worship. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 8. It says that those who make idols will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We become like what we worship. My wife, Reese, said it this way. She said, we become what we behold. What we revere, we end up resembling. So if we worship the world, we'll become like the world. If we worship things, we'll become covetous. If we worship sex, become lustful. Worship money, become greedy. Worship drugs, become chemically dependent. Worship academics, become puffed up in knowledge. If we worship self, become narcissistic. Begin to live like we're the main character. Worship control, become fearful. Worship politics, become polarized and polarizing. If we worship the praise of men, we become enslaved to their approval. See, when good things become ultimate things, they become bad things because they enslave us and they end up disappointing us and we become like them. And so maybe you're wondering, like, what are the idols in my heart? That's a great question to ask. In fact, our, our team has put together a resource to help you this week begin to process through these things. You can go to crosspoint.tv slash first things first. And we've got, we've got a chart and some tools to help you begin to process with God what, what things may be that in our lives that are idols. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is to reveal it. And we're gonna talk about ne- next week, we're gonna talk more about how do we dethrone those things and put God in his rightful place. But you're like, you can't leave us like that. <laughs> Well, let me leave you with one thing. The spiritual principle, the spiritual law that says we become like what we worship, use it for your advantage. See, when we worship Jesus, we become more like him. When we worship the one who is most loving, the one who is most gracious, the one who is merciful and kind and compassionate, the one who is truth, the one who is justice, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy. When we worship him, when Jesus is in the rightful place on our hearts, we become more like him. He begins to move furniture around in our hearts and in our lives that we would be transformed into his image, that rather than worship the the images that, that man has created, we worship him. And we are made and we are formed to be made more like him. And the miracle, the transformation that happens is that you and I are made more like Jesus through through worshiping him because we were made to worship and we're all gonna worship something. But when he is in the rightful place, the power of the Holy Spirit works in our lives to transform us, to make us more like Christ. And that's his invitation. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he rose, walked out of a tomb, conquered death, sin, and hell so that your broken and restless heart could find rest in him. Listen to his invitation and we'll close here and I'll pray for you. And then we'll put this into practice. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'd love to pray for you. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna worship together.
we're gonna experience what we've talked about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that in your love you continue to pursue us, that you don't give up on us. Thank you, Jesus, that your way is better. Thank you that in your kindness, your Holy Spirit reveals the idols in our hearts. So we pray that today that we would join you in beginning to dethrone the idols and to put you in your rightful place, to give you glory and honor and praise, not just the first 15 minutes of our day, but all of our day. And when the sun comes up and the sun goes down, you are worthy to be praised and you have made us for yourself and our hearts find rest in you. So I pray that as we, we take our restless hearts and we run toward you, not the things of this world, but that we would find rest and that in that rest you would transform us, Jesus, and make us more like you by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's worship, church.
That's all I wanna do. I'm here to 